Good morning. It's good to be with you again. What Lewis did, having two young guys come up and share what they knew about September 11th, 2001, and then having two older men share was genius, really. I really enjoyed that, so thank you. All of it. Now it's which two older men are supposed to show up. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he, he didn't, uh, didn't mention that. But I thought you all did very well. All of us would remember, you know, that, that day, for those of us that were able to be old enough to understand what was going on, will remember the details forever imprinted in our minds what went on. I was across the country from these two men, but I was with my dad, we were pouring concrete on a farm, a big farm, and I remember the man, the farmer, came walking briskly out of the house, and the first thing he said as he was coming to us, the Twin Towers were hit. That's the first thing I remember. And uh, that scene will be forever imprinted in my memory. I'll always be able to think back seeing the farmer walk out of the house and say those words are freedom that we enjoy in America was threatened in a way that probably none of us had experienced for sure up to that point. But it, uh, it changed our lives in many ways. Interestingly enough, even for us within the Mennonite culture, there was things that changed, mentality changed. We started hearing about terrorists. We started having things to fear. To, we had a type of fear to deal with that we probably never, never would have had up in our lifetimes up to that point. So really an impactful experience to have been alive at that point in history, in American history. And I think it caused many of us to have a renewed thankfulness for, for freedom, physical freedom to worship God. And it's the freedom that we enjoy here today. We can meet today as a church body and we can worship God within our culture, within uh, safety. And we don't worry about being secretive because someone may find out and will get arrested. Today I want to talk about a subject that's dear to my heart. It's a subject that Early on in my Christian life, it was, it was soon after I became ordained and was preaching that I was thinking, how am I going to have enough content 
in Scripture to preach for the next 50 years. Or, you know, that was just a number that I threw out there in my head. And I realize now how humorous that thought actually is when you're preaching out of the living Word of God. And a lot has changed for me since that thought. But I remember coming to the conclusion over the time that hope was just transforming the way that I thought about life. Living with confident expectation and what all had to change for me to be able to live with confident expectation. I remember thinking this, that if my reputation or if my legacy when I die is that he was a preacher of hope. Well, what's so bad about that? So if I preach, when you hear hope in my messages and you think, oh, no, this again, I hope you don't think that. But if you should, and I die and you think, he always preached about hope. He always preached about the same thing. Well, I will think, well, that wasn't so bad. I want to talk about hope today. I have a wordy title because of a word that I want us to think about in thinking about hope. So the word is constrained. Not constricted or restrained, but constrained. And so my title is An Exhortation of Constrained Expectation. An Exhortation of Constrained Expectation. I want to talk a little bit about my testimony. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but I shared my testimony many times. I was asked recently to, in a text, to share my testimony about how God turned my heart to the scriptures. And I found I had some trouble getting it to come out right on paper. And so ended up making a phone call. But that got me to thinking, I should write down the way that God transformed my life by giving me a passion for his word. But hope became such an important part for me in my early walk and is still a part of who I am by the grace of God, living with hope. But there was a lot that had to change for me in the way I thought about life. My perspective had to change in order for me to be able to wake up in the morning and say, because he lives. Because I wasn't in a position with my mind to be able to live that way. So I want to talk about that just a little bit. One of the things that had to change for me was how I viewed God. To live with hope, I had to look at God for who he was, not for who I had always thought he was. I dealt with a lot of condemnation early on in my life. And so I had to look at God in a particular way to feel all that condemnation from him. But the one thing I had to come to terms with and to realize, and what really was life-changing for me, was this thought that God is good. God is good. God isn't mean. God isn't a God of condemnation. God isn't a ruler. 
doesn't use his authority to just put a thumb over my life. God is good. He's everything good. If we really knew, I think, the strength of the word good in Scripture, it's been dumbed down to the point where we can say this food is good. But that's totally different than saying that God is good. In fact, Jesus said that about God, that he's the only one that's good. So if you call me good, Christ was, was saying this. I like the inside message when he was talking to the man that came to him and called him good master. He said, why callest thou me good? There's only one good but God. However, let's go ahead and talk about your question. I love, to me, he was making a deeper statement there by saying, you called me good. God is the only one good. Think about that. Who are you talking to? But to realize that God was good changed my life. And these verses were so life-giving to me. And I read them many, many times. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. That's, that was a foreign realization. I had lived with condemnation for so many years because of the way I thought about life. But these verses were life to me, to realize God was not a God of condemnation. And the only way that I could actually be condemned is if I rejected his plan of salvation, when I rejected his, his son, became an enemy of the cross. Then I condemned myself. John three seventeen and 18, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he, he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those were the life-changing verses that I just drank in and meditated on. I began to realize what hope felt like. I remember discovering the truth in these verses, John 12, 46 and 47. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. Can you imagine? I had never looked at it that way. I didn't realize that was even in Scripture. But here it was in black and white. Or actually it would have been in red. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Is this how you have been viewing God? He came to save, not to judge. The goodness of God. And what that meant for me during those early years was like information overload. I called my life fast and furious during those times. And I was many times overwhelmed by the realization of how good God was and how the freedom I felt. 
The terms we would use today is, I just couldn't believe it. But yet it was because I believed it that it made such a difference. I was overwhelmed by the thought, and I still get very emotional when I talk about God's grace. First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's become my passion and my goal to live with hope. To wake up tomorrow morning and be hopeful. To have a confident expectation of God's goodness. I want to live with hope. I want you to live with hope. But there's another word that I've also come to think about and to appreciate. I didn't always appreciate this word, but I'm learning to appreciate it because it's part of it. It's part of hope. And it's something that in today's world we wouldn't hear a lot about. That word is commitment. To live with hope every day takes commitment. If you hope to win a race, but you're not committed, you'll never win. You have to hope badly enough. In fact, the Bible definition of hope, and I've shared it already, is confident expectation. To live with confident expectation that you can win will change the way that you prepare and will affect your level of commitment. But today, in this day of instant gratification, commitment is almost foreign. We say we commit our lives to Christ, but how is it that we so easily slip into a lifestyle where our busyness demands more commitment than our relationship? It's natural, I suppose, to hyper-focus on finances and on deadlines and on earthly treasures that benefit our reputation, that line our pockets and make us feel successful. But I want to read a section out of Isaiah where God was talking to the children of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. They were dealing with idols. And it's in this context that this is what God said. Realizing that it's very easy for material, physical things to become idols in our lives. This is what Isaiah said. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet saidst thou not there is no hope. That's a familiar problem. It's something we deal with as humans today. We are wearied in the greatness of our way. We're busy. We're focused. We have schedules. We have deadlines. We have a bank account. We have expectations. 
that we've set for ourselves. We have expectations that others have set for us. We have lifestyles to maintain. And in the mad rush, do we ever take time to address hope? Yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand. Therefore thou wast not grieved. Doesn't that sound familiar? We're too busy with our own lives to stop and think or address this issue. We're too busy living life. But this is what God said. I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. When thou criest, when thou criest, when life stops going smoothly, when things begin to get stormy, when we are dealing with our own mistakes and failures and sins, When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. What have you been living life for? Your passion. The house you've been building. What you've been seeking after. Let thy companies deliver thee. But the truth of it is, the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I dwell in the high and lofty and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Beautiful. Living with hope. I want to look at three facts. I want to have three facts when I leave, when we leave this place today. I want us to have these three in our minds. Because I believe these are the basis for redirecting our busy minds. And it's within these three facts that we find God's peace, God's righteousness, and God's joy. And these three facts are something that I had to realize for me to be able to live with hope. And they continue to be life-changing for me. The three facts are God's goodness. We talked about that. The next is God's forgiveness. And the third is God's completion. God's completion. What sweet discovery that when I hide these in my heart and keep them in my mind, this creates a, an environment where my faith can grow. My faith grows when I'm focused on God's goodness God's forgiveness, and God's completion. And when my faith grows, when, when I have an environment that's favorable for my faith, this also creates a safe, protective environment for my family, my children, my earthly 
my heavenly, rather, my heavenly treasures. When we dwell in God's goodness, we see God at work. Like the wind, his presence is felt. Sometimes it's just a slight whisper or a tickling breeze. Other times it's a gale force that roars with unmistakable power and sometimes knocks us off our feet and alters the course of our life. God's goodness is all of that. Let's dwell on it. When we dwell in God's forgiveness, we see his goodness. When we dwell and focus on his forgiveness, it's therein that we know a love that passes knowledge. I love that. That's a scriptural term, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. We experience his love and compassion flowing through us into the lives of those he loves. His forgiveness turns my natural criticism into his unnatural compassion. I speak from experience, for I've, I well remember how critical of a person I was. I remember the jokes, I remember the snide remarks, the behind the back snickering. I was a part of all that. But his forgiveness turned my natural criticism into his unnatural compassion. When we live with the realization that it is finished, God's completion, it is finished. We live with true freedom. What is left for us after he endured the cross? What's left for us? Any work to do? What's left for us after he endured the cross is righteousness, peace, and joy. True, unfiltered joy. The significance of Christ's words on the cross was brought to my attention recently as I listened to a message online. I don't know how many of you would have ever heard of Granger Smith. But I've enjoyed and been inspired by listening to a message he preached and also a podcast that he has, and there's other messages as well. The most powerful word ever spoken, if you have time, type that into Google, the most powerful word ever spoken by Granger Smith, and listen to his sermon. A beautiful sermon. It was in that sermon that I was inspired to share this this morning. The completion on the cross. It is finished. Granger brings out that this is, this means something deeper than 
than really any English equivalent we have for those words. So it is finished actually would mean it is finished and will continue to be finished until the end of time. When you study the original Greek wording. It is finished. There's nothing more that we can add to his completed work. We accept it by faith and with thankfulness. Hebrews 6, I want to read some verses in Hebrews 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. What does this mean? Well, this is in Hebrews. So is it safe to say this was written to Hebrews, to the Jews? For a Jew to fall away, what would it, what would it look like? Would he go out into the world and live the way he wants? I believe for a Jew to fall away meant he would revert back to the system of following the law and the sacrifices and all of that. And so listen to what he's saying here. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and tasted of the word of God and the powers of the world to come. Praise the Lord. If they shall fall away, if they're going to go back to the animal sacrifices and to observing all of the, the rituals and the laws, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Your sins are no longer covered once you've tasted. There's nothing more you can do. Christ completed the work and nothing can be added to it. In fact, if you try to gain repentance, salvation by any other way, it's like hanging Christ back up on the cross and saying your sacrifice is no more complete or special than that of an animal. And so you must be sacrificed again and again and again. They crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh put him to an open shame. But no, his sacrifice was the ultimate. He lived a sinless life, the perfect lamb. He's the only one that's ever done so. And so he was the only one that was eligible to die and pay the price to restore your relationship back to the Father. For forgiveness to take place, it couldn't have happened any other way. We say freedom is not free. And nowhere is it more true than on the cross. When we try to gain relationship with God by doing good things, by committing ourselves to a life of discipline and sacrifice, when we have a touch-not, taste-not, handle-not mindset, we can put Christ to an open shame because we're not putting our faith in Him alone. 
the Apostle Paul's declaration of commitment. Galatians 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The life I now live, I live by faith in his completion. It is finished. He loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's declaration of commitment. What about the word constraineth? Where does that come in? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17. This is the words of Paul. And he said, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Constraineth us. You look at the word constrain. It gave me a different meaning of the word. In the Strong's, it gives the idea of being preoccupied with. I love that. Being taken with. Maybe the words we could use today would be enthralled or totally focused on. The love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge, this is the conclusion, if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I want to go a little off script and give you an example out of Romans 7 about the difference from following rules and, and following the old law versus living with Christ, living unto Christ. So in Romans 7, Paul gives the example of marriage. And he says, I speak to them that know the law. Well, let's still try to make sense of it. Even though we haven't ever lived under the law, we can understand what it means to live under a law, especially in our Mennonite culture. We're familiar with standards that the church has put forth. But for a Jew living under the law, this really made a huge difference. What wives here have demanding husbands? No, no I'm just kidding. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't raise your hand. But this is given in the context of a Jew having a husband. And the reality of it was they did. The Jews were married to the law. They had a husband, and it was a demanding husband. It was a husband that you could never gain their approval. The husband always demanded more than what you were able to give. No matter how perfectly you lived, it wasn't good enough. The law demanded such perfection 
that it could never be satisfied. And so he uses that example. The woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. And that was where they found themselves. They were married to the law. That was, that was a covenant. We call marriage a covenant. This may be where it comes from. But they were married to the, to the, to the demands of the law. And they were stuck there because... There had to be a death. Either the law had to die or the person had to die to be freed from the law. So they had this situation where there was the law, they were demanded to follow it, and there was no way out. And they could never gain approval. Because the Jew, the wife, was unable to, didn't have the ability to actually live the law out to perfection. So that was the situation. Well, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world for two reasons. He stepped into the place of the law. The reason he was able to do that was he lived perfectly. He lived in a way that he owed the law nothing. The law, he lived to perfection. And he was the first one to have ever done that. So that put him into a position of, you could say, authority. He lived the law perfectly. So now he represented the law. He was the epitome of the law. He was the first to have ever lived it out to perfection. So since he was the only one in that position... He said, I'll do this. As the perfect representation of the law, I'm going to give my life. In place of the law, the law is the husband, right? So he said, I will step in place of the law, and I will give my life. I will die. So that's as if the husband died. The law died because Christ representing the law, and he was the only one that could because he lived it to perfection. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. So the law actually died. And then that freed the wife, the Jew, to be married to another. She was now a widow, and she could be married to someone else. So Christ rose from the dead by his great power and said, I will be the new husband. So now you will marry me. and will be groom and bride. So with that, let me read these verses. Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, and she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. 
Now you no longer have to meet the demands of your husband. He met the demands, and you're free. Beautiful. The most beautiful thing that we can experience on earth. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of God constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that we which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And then verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul was committed in faith and constrained by love, preoccupied with the love of Christ. I love that. This was a standard that was more effective than any man-made rule. And it gave him hope instead of condemnation. The verses that I read, therein we see God's goodness, God's forgiveness, and God's completion. This is the result of knowing the goodness of God, of living in his forgiveness and believing that it is finished and will continue to be finished until the end of time. Some more verses in Ephesians from Paul. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there was one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. Let the love of Christ constrain you. Be preoccupied with it. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Second Timothy, Paul said, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. We'll find that sometimes in our own life. We'll feel alone. We'll feel on an island. But this was his testimony. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. Isn't that amazing to think that the Lord stands by you in your hour of hardship, in your time of trouble? This was Paul's testimony. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. There are many things that can constrain us, but only love makes us new. All of us have a message. Paul was vocal about his message, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We also have a message. A message that can only be shared by the way we live our lives. The message of Christ's love and the power it has 
to change lives. Only love gives us hope. Only love is inseparable. Only love will last forever. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or if we're hungry or destitute or in danger or even threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. Through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our husband, whom we now live under. And we live under him and we can enjoy full protection for that's how he uses his authority to serve and protect. Those were some words taken from Romans 8. Ephesians chapter 3 says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And then verse 19, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Living with hope. I want to encourage each of us, and I want to challenge you to begin forming a habit tomorrow morning. To first dwell on God's goodness, God's forgiveness, in God's completion, before you begin your daily routine. Because he lives is a phrase that has become habitual for me to say as soon as my alarm sounds and I swing out of bed. I don't always swing out of bed. Sometimes I <laughs> kind of roll over a few times and slowly creak my way. <laughs> To the floor. But that phrase has become a habit. Whether I always welcome it or not. Because he lives. That's the only reason for living. That's the only reason for hope. Without that, there wouldn't be any reason for me to be here. Or for you to be here. The benefits of having this as my first thought of the day is one of the main reasons for this message. 
That phrase, to me, embodies all of the good things we talked about this morning and helps me to stay committed to storing up heavenly treasures. I mentioned my children being heavenly treasures. Relationships have become so precious to me recently. It's been on my mind a lot. And it's something that my wife recently shared with me on some commitments or some things that she has decided on how to look at her day. When you are faced with a decision on what to do, think about it this way. First comes relationships. So whatever decision you have to make, try to make that the priority. Sometimes you're not able to, but most of the time I think that can affect the decisions you make. What decision will be best for relationships? Take that first. The next one, deadlines. You're going to have to take care of deadlines. So if you have company coming, Maybe with every fiber in your being, you want to clean the house. Or sit on the porch and sit tea or something like that. But there has to be food made. Just something that simple. So tackle the food first. Get it out of the way. There has to be food or you probably won't have company. You can get by with maybe partially cleaning parts of the house. Something like that. So do deadlines next. And then other things you'd like to get done, tackle those next. What was significant to me and what she shared with me was the first one was relationships. That must be a priority. That's how you live with hope, is by putting the important things where they belong. It's so easy to get carried away with less important things and get off track and lose our focus to where we're asking Christ Please tell Mary to come. Bid her that she help me. But the words of Christ, Mary has chosen that good part that shall not be taken away from her. She was putting relationship first. And not all was lost. May we do the same. God bless you. And God bless you in your endeavors with your challenge to live with hope and get in the habit of praising God and thanking him for what he's done as soon as you hear that annoying alarm.